Notice to parents and to single people, this message deals with explicit issues which may not be suitable for younger teens. Please use parental discretion before sharing this CD. For those who are not married, the core message is vitally important to you regardless of your personal marital status in that it addresses the spiritual warfare behind the attack on God-ordained institution of marriage and family. So please don't be put off by the title just because of your own singleness. It definitely relates directly to you. A Marriage Parable There once was a city full of solidly built homes, but over time, neglect and the infiltration of destructive influences began to rot the structures from the inside out until they became untrustworthy. When a series of storms rolled in, many of the houses began to collapse and much damage was left behind. Those who survived the storms gathered in the town square, and this is what they decided. We will not seek to rebuild the lost homes, nor will we attempt to understand what mistakes caused them to fail in the storm. We're much smarter now. We don't need homes to live in anymore. We will just live out in the open on the rubble pile and just make tents here and there now and then with whatever material is at hand. Word got out that over half the homes had failed to stand. It turned out that was way overstated. Most of the homes ever built had lasted a lifetime, and the report that current homes failed 50% of the time was grossly inaccurate. But that didn't matter to the survivors of the storms. More and more of them opted to reject home building and live in their temporary pup tents, moving from tent to tent, until exposure to the elements brought disease, weakness, and early deaths. This was all called progress. But for some who still had the good of reason, they began to study and uncover the flaws and mistakes, and built according to the original blueprint of the ancient dwellings that had stood the test of time. They and their children began to prosper and retake the devastated land. They slowly but surely restored the old waste places and the ancient paths to dwell in, as the new solidly built structures began to rise over the landscape, many who had opted to reject house building found shelter in these new houses and gained the wisdom needed to rebuild their own homes eventually. And little by little, they reclaimed what had been a dying world. Ephesians 5.23 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But this is a great mystery, and I speak concerning Christ and his church. Have you ever wished the Bible writers would have explained their statements just a little bit more? This verse is one of those examples. Paul is offering practical guidance for married couples, but then takes a huge 90-degree angle turn straight up from the earth into the upper atmosphere of the heavenlies, where he then equates earthly marriage with the ultimate cosmic mystery of Messiah and his church. He makes this seemingly offhand remark that the earthly, everyday relationship of a man and a woman in marriage, as they learn to live and love together, 
is not some vague shadow of the eternal, but is actually, he uses the word, a profound mystery regarding the eternal. The word mystery in the New Testament usually refers to some hidden spiritual reality that used to be covered up, but now has been fully revealed. But not here. Here Paul refers to the marriage mystery as an ongoing profundity of mystery. In other places, Paul's reference to the various mysteries like Ephesians 3.5 or 1 Corinthians 15 are defined as revelations of what up till then had been unrevealed, previous secrets of God which God has now made fully known, but not here. Here he refers to the mystery as being unfolding, partially grasped, but still to be explored. The later unveilings of this great mystery, which are seen in the book of Revelation, as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. The angel takes John into the spirit realm and shows him the bride, the lamb's wife. We could spend all our time exploring what we do know of this mystery. Human history opens with a divinely ordained marriage of one man to one woman in God's image and likeness. Human history closes with a cosmic marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. But we have to agree with Paul that even John's further unveiling only increases our sense of wonder and mystery. What does it mean that the very earthly, human, even mundane marriage relationship between a man and a woman carries in its very essence the DNA of the final yet undisclosed event of highest heaven? the very natural, earthly, everydayness of domestic life, of running a household, being united with the divine union of God as man, with his bride, the church, reminds us of his first coming when God as man arrives in the dusty, stinky stable through the very human body of a woman. God seems intent to help us grasp that the highest not only is willing to descend into the lowest in order to raise it up to the highest, but seems focused on doing so. Yet everyday living, struggling, washing, cleaning, ironing, fixing broken stuff and breaking fixed stuff, which is what I would do, all this normal everyday stuff is crammed full of God stuff. And nothing brings more stability and sheer goodness of what humanity is meant to be than the day-in, day-out outworking of normal living within the confines of a loving, faithful, godly marriage. So, nothing is more hated by hell than such a marriage. And as the unfolding of history shows, wherever Antichrist forces are in power, the attack on marriage and domestic life is first and foremost in their attack. As Vladimir Lenin and the early Marxists knew, the family is the greatest engine for godliness and freedom in a nation. So marriage must be destroyed in order to topple a nation's solidarity. Of course, it didn't begin with leftists. They are only the offspring 
of the original hater of marriage. There's a war against marriage. There has been a war against the Holy Union since the beginning before the fall. The serpent enters the story in the garden with the view of not only bringing man down, but divide and conquer. The division of man from his wife was a huge part of that original attack. As evil grew and the population covered the earth, in Genesis chapter 4 we find Lamech, who is the sixth in the line from Cain. This is significant with regard to later New Testament references to the way of Cain, the mark of the beast, the end-time mystery Babylon, who is the mother of harlots. All these are related. And a Torah-based understanding of the Hebraic text links the rebellious and murderous spirit of Cain and the number six, the offspring of Lamech, with the willful celebration of the, of the deforming and perverting of the marriage union of Genesis, followed by a celebration of murder and bloodshed. When it states that Lamech, quote, took to himself two wives, end quote, this is not a mere reference to a man simply obtaining an agreement from two women to live equally with him as their husband. No, it's a willful, rebellious action. These women whose names, Ada and Zila, imply an ornament and a tinkling shadow, refers to the nature of Lemek's attraction, one based solely on lust and ownership, and as far from the intention of God in marriage as could possibly be. Ada is a mere object of lust. Zila can only be a shadow, a mere shadow of her superior. The two become one? No, it's impossible. That's replaced with the three remaining divided, united only by their common commitment to be against God. Lamech is a vile, boastful bully of a man with blood on his hands. He's not to be confused with the Lamech from the line of Seth, who becomes the father of Noah, by the way. Though his line is obviously cut off by the flood, the spirit of his rage against the will and purposes of God emerges again in the post-flood civilizations so that even among God-fearing tribes, the meaning of marriage in its fullness has been lost and mixed with pagan ideas. The restored purpose for marriage will not be fully regained until the Lord Jesus himself defines and reinstitutes it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. For 3,000 years of pagan history, various forms of perversion from the original godly order can be seen, while still the heart of God's original plan emerges at times. After Jesus and the church following him, the plan and purpose for the beginning was restored, and 2,000 years of Christian history produced the strongest most lasting and productive culture in the history of the world, with marriage as a lifelong relationship of one man and one woman as its foundation. But how do you explain the obvious? It's very difficult to discuss that which up till now was so accepted and understood and respected that no attempt was needed to explain it to anybody. But try explaining to a political ideologue why a nation 
has to maintain its boundaries and borders if it's going to survive. Or why the murder of children is wrong. Language fails. How do you find words to describe the obvious? If there's no inner spiritual common sense that already intuits truth, verbal explanations seem impotent. Generations of men and women, boys and girls, simply understood that the human race draws its life and existence from the union of a man and a woman, even if parts of that race chose due to evil hearts and selfishness to disregard the sacredness of the union and to opt for its misuse by sexual sin and oppression. Still, the foundation was never questioned in civilized cultures. After the Torah's original revelation of the creation of man and woman, that same principle is underscored again in the Torah with the statement, Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. A perusal of the major ancient civilizations affirms a general respect for marriage even amidst pagan perversions of it. The separation of the Jewish people out from the other nations and the giving of the Torah, which defined marriage and the family, made the eventual emerging of Western civilization possible. For those who have Western civilization uh, in their sights for destruction, they clearly understand that in order to destroy the civilization, marriage must be destroyed first. That relationship of husband and wife and children constitutes the image of God in the earth and gives homage by its existence to the Trinitarian source of creation. The meta-narrative of the entire Bible is set upon this premise. So if you go wobbly on this issue, you go wobbly off the entire revelation of Scripture. You cannot go soft on the biblical revelation of sexuality and still be Christian, period. And you cannot successfully overthrow Western civilization without first destroying the family and replacing it with a free-for-all pan-sexual paganism. This closing off of sexual energy and containing it within the confines of covenant gave the impetus for the creative energy that would be redirected into the nurture of children, the education of culture, the rise of creativity, the structure of government, and the freedom born from inner self-controls, both nurture, which is affection and affirmation, and admonition, which is wisdom and loving correction, as the scriptures refer to it. This nurture and admonition produced a people who could rise up and raise up a civilization to the heights that we have now known and enjoyed. It's a huge error to focus on the current war over so-called same-sex marriage as if that suddenly became the only problem we have to face. Though this current government endangers itself daily before Almighty God in its arrogant and foolish attacks on all things sacred, the pathway for its evil activities has been laid for decades by the failure of the people of God to live in our true calling. We've lived off the borrowed capital of those who went before us. Their gold was tried in the fire and was purified enough to buy the freedoms that we then merely inherited. 
We have devoured that capital and failed to renew its value by refusing to engage the spiritual disciplines which were the norms of our forefathers, the fear of God, self-control, thrift, and most certainly the honor for parents and for the marriage covenant, produced the freedom and productivity of the West. We're certainly not suggesting there was no sin or failure in our forebears, but there was enough of the fear of God and the honor for his revelation to make for spiritual common sense, which was the rule and not the exception. But a slow, incremental disintegration of those basic truths has been our continual path until we now find ourselves on the precipice. And, as has been said by wiser folks than me, when you find yourself on the edge of a cliff, the only way to make progress is to back up. But who wants to hear about backing up when so few even see the cliff? The sights and sounds of celebrations of the flesh fill our senses with totally deceptive ambiance of business as usual, like those who focus their full attention on the Muzak as they walk through the airplane terminal toward an aircraft certain to crash. We feel okay if the TV is full of laughter and the offices and restaurants and entertainment centers are business as usual. What will it take to make any room for the level of awakening needed so that we can back away from the cliff? God always allows the enemies of truth to flourish when his people fail to stand. He uses the very rise of evil allowed by our passivity and disobedience to be the force that awakens us to the plight and to our only hope. The good outcome of the rise of such evil is, or can be, an awakening that leads to real repentance and righteous action, which leads to redemptive change. Such conflict is all from God's grace, both the judgment that brings the awakening and the ability to awaken and act righteously. So, that being true, the dismal state of our current culture is a harbinger of potential great good if we heed the truth and repent. I believe it's a devil's deception that keeps too many Christians focused on various end-time scenarios if such end-time concepts only lull us into a passive inactivity with the idea that well, Jesus said things would get worse and worse before he comes back, so this all too easily morphs into an excuse for actively thinking about the end times while really doing nothing. And even worse can lead to a disintegration of our own character and relationships. We are in war. Lack of vigilance in wartime is suicidal. But a materialist culture crammed full of amenities that make for comfort and mindless entertainment is a fruitful field for the enemy to sow tares. If he cannot make us fruit fruitless, he will seek to hinder us by overwhelming us with evil mixture, the holy with the unholy. And as long as we think our holiness balances our high treason, we will remain a bigger part of the problem with no answer. We're only healthy in this present culture if we are grieved to the core of our hearts. If we are not in deep sorrow, we are in deep deception. 
Jesus did say the wheat would grow along with the tares because the attempt to separate them would damage the wheat, but he didn't mean the mixture of the wheat and the tares should be inside each of us individually, but among us. If we are carrying the mixture within us, are we not tares? Wheat and tares look alike until the harvest comes, but when the harvest begins, the wheat will have borne fruit. The tares, not so much. Only the Lord knows who are His and who are not. We all have areas in our lives the Holy Spirit is cleansing and correcting and dealing with. I'm not for a moment suggesting some kind of sinless perfection of the wheat before the harvest, but let's be clear. It's a dangerous thing to presume on God's grace as a free ticket to coast along with the spirit of the age. Blessed is the man or woman who finds himself or herself with a sense of rising, convicting, correcting pressure being brought on our inner life. We have within ourselves the witness of the spirit if we are his, but if our lives are fruitless, or worse, bearing bad fruit, because we're drawing from a poisonous field, which has been the sad testimony of much of the church over these past few decades, then the increase of evil is going to be allowed by the Lord for the purpose of awakening us to our sick condition that hopefully will move us toward righteousness and repentance. Marriage is only possible for a spiritually awake people. It's not possible for marriages to succeed in the atmosphere of the current culture. It doesn't matter how spiritually awake someone claims to be. If they are morally compromised and ignorant of the scriptures, they will not have what it takes to walk out the marriage covenant. So it's no wonder that many marriages seem to be falling apart. Let's return for a moment to our opening parable about the collapsing houses as a picture of marriage. It is simply insane to refuse to rebuild safe, secure, lasting shelters because improperly built ones failed to stand in the storm. But that is what is happening. Many young people are refusing to marry while vying for various forms of living together, like those who refuse to build a real home but will live in a makeshift shanty town. People are not building, they are shacking. And the insubstantial remains of their failed-before-they-begin projects, which are now wreckages, are increasingly littering the landscape as more and more innocent children suffer among the debris. Without a restoring of the understanding of the foundation which awakens awe and godly fear about the cosmic nature of our sexuality, as long as we think of it as no different than the world, as a romp in fleshly pleasure or a romantic thrill for our own private happiness, then marriage seminars and counseling and self-help books for struggling couples will be no more helpful than trying to patch a roof of one of our collapsed houses. Helping couples improve communication or manage their money better or put away impure sexual ad additives from their private lives, those are all good things. But patching a roof of a home with no foundation is obviously missing the mark entirely. If we are to restore our lost city, we must examine what was wrong, correct our own thinking and acting, and establish strong 
homes built with wisdom, practical forethought, and solid material. What do I mean by wisdom, practical forethought, and solid material with reference to building a solid and lasting marital home? Wisdom would mean that we must restore the spiritual understanding of the meaning of marriage. Most people, and I have performed hundreds of weddings, most people, even after a certain degree of premarital counseling, which I always require, do not have a solid worldview of biblical understanding of what they're about to enter into. I try to bring them to that point as much as is humanly possible, but it takes a revelation of the Spirit born in the heart of a person who's humbled themselves before God and is hungry to understand. This wisdom which is from above is peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of good fruits. It is the opposite of the wisdom of the world which is full of envy and strife and wickedness and where every evil work is. And I see envy, strife, wickedness, and every evil work at work in many of the relationships around me that I have to deal with. It's because there is no foundation. And the foundation is absent because there is no fear of God or honoring of His Word. Practical forethought. What do I mean by practical forethought? I mean a realistic view of how marriage works. It's okay to have a great high holy vision of marriage. Be up in there in the cosmos and and See the the transcendent realities behind marriage. That's vital. But like one of Paul's epistles, he goes from the stratosphere to the everyday mundane practicalities of paying your bills and telling the truth and speaking the truth and living in a realistic expectation of what life's about. Practical forethought about marriage has to do with Thinking about what you're going to build before you build it, as Jesus refers to. Count the costs before you build. Uh, Sometimes I interact with young people, sometimes not so young, who are awakening to the fact that marriage means they are no longer their own person. And they're troubled by it. I've actually had people say to, to me, well, you know, uh, I mean, when Mary and I were about to be married, uh, I actually had Christian people say to me, don't you realize if you marry, you're always going to be together. You'll never have any time alone. Remarkable. I'm very grateful that uh, since I married Mary, I have not been alone. Certainly I need time to myself, and she does too, but not more than a couple of hours, and then I'm ready to go see what she's doing. Thirdly, solid material. We need wisdom, we need practical forethought, we need solid material. That What is solid material in a marriage? It's proven personal character of the bride and the groom. Um, I don't want to build a roof over the house of uh, made of lumber with, with wormholes in it. And I don't want to put a man covering a woman who himself doesn't have the capacity to ward off invading insects into his soul. 
each one of these we could spend too, too much time on that we don't have. But I just want to put them, put these things in your thinking. Before we can challenge the culture, we've got to repent. The end of World War II brought on a major transformation in the mindset of America, and we are all affected by it. Even those of us, like myself, who who fight this battle daily and who are consciously aware of the, these needs, I, I have to fight to keep my head out of these mindsets that I'm describing. World War I turned out not to be the war that ended all wars. We had to fight the second version of it. But after World War II was finished, we assumed, to paraphrase Chesterton, that the world had ended well because the world had ended with us, the U.S. The close of the war resulted in not a sober examination of the big picture, nor a brave expose of the evil that men's hearts are capable of, but rather there was a search for immediate fulfillment in the material. We'd gone from the deprivation of the Great Depression straight into the anguish of war, and we wanted no more hard times. Two of the top-selling books of the late 1940s and early 1950s were books on personal freedom and pleasure written by a rabbi and The Power of Positive Thinking written by a clergyman. Both of these multi-million sellers taught a focus on self-fulfillment over self-sacrifice. We were now in the happy days of the Eisenhower era. Returning soldiers anxious to find real life, married, pursued businesses, went to college on the GI Bill and produced my generation, the baby boomers. They may have been christened the greatest generation when they came back from the war, but the heroes of World War II were only given a brief welcome home before they were quickly moved off center stage and replaced by rock and roll stars and movie idols. With rel relative freedom from danger and a booming economy and abounding creativity, generating an avalanche of abundance, new goods and services were everywhere as well as new innovations. And among those new innovations was a pill, one that could stop pregnancy. Now, it's too easy to argue that once the pill made pregnancy avoidable, then women began leaving marriages in droves to join the unfaithful men who had been catting around and being unfaithful all along. That's a little too simplistic and a little too cynical. But... At the same time, it's naive not to face the strong contribution that the pill made. Yes, I appreciate its helpfulness in certain circumstances, but the pill simply increased sexual freedom on the cultural level and made the possibility of sex without the conception of children a primary transformation this so-called freedom brought a paved highway for other influences which would result in a huge rise in the divorce rate. Ten years after the pill, the next logical step in godless culture thinking would emerge. With the pill, what didn't get stopped by the pill would be stopped 
by abortion. So by 1973, a decade after the pill, we began murdering our children. Once the sanctity of the marriage union was no longer seen as the only valid place for sexual union, and the killing of children was reduced to a mere woman's right to choose, it simply didn't matter after that what other contributing elements might be at work in the disintegration of marriage. The die was cast. Once the foundation is destroyed, there's no question, no wonder why the building tumbles down. The current attempt to change the very definition of marriage is in no way meant to enlarge the circle of true marriage, for heaven's sakes. What sense does it possibly make that married people are seemingly leaving marriage while those uh, expressing an perverse lifestyle claim they want the sanctity of the marriage covenant. It's insanity. That's not what this is about at all. It's not about life-affirming qualities available to all people. It's qualities, marriage's qualities, have been available for all of us, and that's what's produced the blessing of our culture. The existence of God-ordained covenant marriage of one man and one woman for life was the bedrock upon which the entire free world culture was built. As Rabbi Dennis Prager stated, without the institution of marriage affirmed by the Judaic Christian faith, Western civilization could not have developed. Leftists and antichrists affirm this, as we have previously stated. In fact, sadly, they seem to know it more accurately than many of the Jews and Christians do, for they target that very marriage covenant as the one supporting pillar of the culture they most want to remove. In order to destroy the free West, they must destroy marriage altogether. The way to destroy marriage is to awaken the lowest and most vile sexual appetites and drown the public imagination in its fluids. This is no secret. It was the open plot proclaimed by leftist activists ever since the Russian Revolution, and it has been enhanced by the homosexual activists ever since the early 1970s. Their goal is not marriage. Their goal is the annihilation of marriage. The goal is not to simply be allowed to have a part in the American dream by turning same-sex partnerships into Ozzie and Harriet-like marriages, but it was and is to annihilate the institution of marriage itself and by so adulterating it that it ceases to exist. Why? Well, in order to do away with boundaries. They seek to create a world of pansexual freedom, quote-unquote, where any person of any age may have sex with any person they desire. When I have made this statement in public settings, I have been sometimes questioned for proof. And people who ask for that proof, I, I kind of, in a weird kind of way, uh, envy, because it means they are somehow living in a bubble so removed from the crassness of constant assault against everything righteous and pure and uh, holy, that it makes me wonder what planet they live on. But I don't envy that level of ignorance when it comes to taking a stand for righteousness in your generation. But the proof is MTV, Hollywood, the media, the government mind-controlled public school system, and so-called higher education. Do we need to go on? 
Just as the architect of the French Revolution sought to purge all aspects of Christianity from France by doing away with a seven-day work week, including the Sabbath, so the practitioners of sexual promiscuity seek to do away with the one form of sexual union which, by its very existence, stands as an immovable and unavoidable barrier to animal sexuality and as a reminder that the Creator has set boundaries we are to honor and obey. Just as France had to return to the seven-day work week because nothing else worked, so sexuality must return to its boundaries of the heterosexual monogamous marriage for life covenant, for nothing else can produce life. Evil is not self-sustaining. It will implode eventually. The sexual revolution is dying. Just as a dying star grows huge and red before it novas, so the devilish outburst of free sex we've been in, having to indulge for over 60 years is swelling to its zenith before its nadir. This is the time for godly people to awaken. Before we shake our fists in the face of the culture, we must deal with our own unrepented of sins. The church has made no effort to deal with the disintegration of marriage and has in some cases actually supported uh, attitudes that have encouraged that disintegration. The proliferation of high-profile Christian leaders in some parts of the church who not only can't keep their marriages together, but are now in their second and third and some even fourth marriages uh, hardly sets an example of uh, righteous leadership that anybody can trust or emulate. Hopefully not emulate Though there are many who would rather die than give up what's killing them, there are also ever-increasing numbers of people enslaved by what they thought would give them freedom and joy and are asking if there is any place real life can be found. They're longing to be released from the pleasure palace that has become their prison. The keepers of the torture chambers protest more and more loudly because they're Ruse is being exposed. The free love wasn't free. There was no love, and it has only yielded a harvest of murdered babies, AIDS, venereal epidemics, suicide, mental illness, betrayed loves, broken hearts, disintegrated inner cities, babies in dumpsters, multiplied murder, and meaningless zombie-like encounters of bodies who wander from bed to bed. But many don't know how to speak up. No matter how flimsy the collapsing citadel of hell truly is, Christians seem to not have the courage or ability or wisdom to speak up. We don't speak up for two reasons, I think. Maybe there's more. Either or both. We have our own private struggles and feel disqualified by them. And we are also drowning in the world's propaganda. We've been losing the fight because we have fallen for oft-repeated lies spoken through the media outlet propaganda lapdogs of the spirit of the age. Now, the answer to the first bondage, that we are caught in our own secret issues, that's easily corrected by an honest, loving embrace of each other in confessing our sins and receiving the support and help of a spiritual family. Yeah, yeah, I know. 
I know how scary that may sound, but I'll tell you, we have come so far in sexual pollution that, in my experience anyway, very few churches any longer sit in any sort of pharisaical superiority posture, looking down sanctimonious noses at those wicked perverts below who have fallen. Everybody has been wounded. Everybody has either been a perpetrator or had been has been perpetrated against or knows someone they love that fits in one of those categories or both. God has purposefully allowed us to sow the wind so that we'll reap the whirlwind so that in the circles that I'm related to anyway, this is a wide, uh, and that's a wide portion of the body of Christ from various parts of the of the body. Uh, judgmentalism is disappearing. They're 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 not judging. They're weeping, and they're weeping together in an atmosphere of love and humility, and true. That's where true healing happens. So, if you can find the courage to press through and locate somebody in the body of Christ that you can bear your grief to and uh, and begin to get help on that level, then we can do away with that particular hindrance. The second barrier is overturned by simple education. Now, maybe not simple, but education. We must overthrow the propaganda machines or at least render them powerless in our own world. For instance, it is not true that over 50% of marriages end in divorce. Not really. That stat was arrived at from the many mem- numbers of ill-prepared, immature marriages which were doomed before they ever got started. These marriages consist of people who have dropped out of school, are usually under the age of 20, and have a baby out of wedlock on the way and don't have any means of support. The stacks of stats against marriage on paper um, would uh, make it appear that most marriages are just disintegrating. Uh, Marriage is is falling apart. 50% are unhappy as a friend of mine said recently. In other words, we become a living word instead of a mere brain-spouting information. And that's what changes hearts and lives. We become a, an epistle known and read of all men, written by the Holy Spirit. Finally, and this part may be more for pastors, seek the Lord for the anointing and for the revelation to preach and teach boldly about the sins of the church and what we have been responsible for in allowing ourselves to become what we've become, calling our people to focus specific areas where we need to repent. This is not done on a Sunday morning. It's done in the lifestyle and culture of of the DNA of a church. Deal with idolatry, which includes all manner of sexual sin. All manner of sexual sin. There are congregations that have never heard a sermon on sexual purity because the pastor is too afraid of offending people. doesn't matter if he's offending God. He's worried about offending people. Deal with worldliness. This refers to a mindset that not only tolerates the spirit of the age, but engages with it and blesses it. Paul says that that spirit is an enemy of the cross. Deal with past wounds. Call your people to start dealing honestly with past wounds. I know there are many 
pastors that have done this for years. This has just been part of the very DNA of your pastoral work. But for those who have opted for a more easy, believism, Sunday morning, feel-good message that doesn't open people up to the levels of, of uh, the core issues of their lives, repent of that. Go to God and ask Him for grace to be able to prophetically confront and pastorally heal. And finally, educating your people in the truth about culture and about marriage and about sexuality, which automatically follows dealing with past wounds. Now, the difficulty of this neat little list I've just presented, and forgive me, I know how neat little lists sound. That's why I don't really like them. But we do what we can with the time we've got. And so I make my little neat little list as a, as a pastor and as a teacher and as a helper of people, knowing that every one of those items in that list could stand a whole treatment that we don't have time to give it here. But I'm just trying to put in our thinking, uh, awaken in our thinking some of these issues. Um, we're up against the very spirit of the age when we are trying to address the spirit of the age in our congregations. Many, many people are so under the spirit of the age that when you start speaking against the spirit of the age, they go into a coma induced by the spirit of the age we're trying to break off of them. That means we're up against spiritual warfare. It's going to take intercessory prayer to break the spirit of slumber. And that word slumber in the Greek is the word for stupor, it, the stupidity uh, that keeps people from first even hearing, then grasping, and finally acting on these truths. So I would encourage all of us, especially leaders, pastors, if you don't have an intercessory prayer group, if you don't have a group of people that really truly know how to pray and know how to stand in the gap for the sanctity and healing of the whole congregation, gather, even if it's just two or three. Jesus said where two or three are gathered, the whole church's power is there because Jesus is there. And have them begin to pray for you as a leader and pray for the congregation that the spirit of the world will be exposed for what it is. Only then can people's marriages begin to be healed. If you're in a church where the spirit of the world is, is pre prevalent, uh, trying to heal a marriage inside that church is like trying to do surgery in a cesspool. We will not transform the entire culture. Just like the poor you will have with you always, the battle we will have with us always until the Lord comes. But we may not even reach our own entire community or even our entire church fellowship. But every individual and couple we reach with these truths becomes another powerful force for good toward the restoration not only of marriage, which is automatically uh, a, a slap in the devil's face, but it's also the movement of a positive domino effect. Once marriage, any marriage is restored, then childhood in that marriage is restored. Education is restored. Maturing of those children into stable, godly adults is restored. And then eventually enough of those begins to affect the restoration of what has been lost through the culture. But if any of this is possible, and we know it is, we must believe that it is possible enough 
to take seriously the call away from pop culture, bubblegum, cartoon Christianity, which is drowning in its impotent copies of the world, and return to the clear power of the gospel, the call to real righteousness and submission to the Holy Spirit. When the reality of the gospel is being manifested in power among us, we will neither desire nor need worldly gimmicks to get people to come to church. The very mindset will thankfully vanish from our thinking, and the effect of such a change in leaders will be first a purging out of the unconverted and a raising up of real disciples. Now, if we fear the loss of numbers, if we speak too much truth, then we are hirelings and not shepherds, and we're betraying the cross. That doesn't mean we ever need to be unnecessarily harsh or or polemic But it certainly does mean if we address these issues faithfully, the unfaithful will either have to change or they'll leave. Now, thank God for the purging. If it comes because of truth spoken in love, you'll end up with a much stronger, if smaller, company. But a company that the Holy Spirit will empower for redemptive good. Wouldn't it be great to have a body of people who fear the Lord and seek His face and grow in His grace? than a mixed multitude of worldly-minded counterfeit converts? Finally, there's a song that was written over 30 years ago by a wonderful Christian poet named Don Francisco. He wrote it for his own wedding, and I have used it in every wedding I have ever performed because it sums up the transcendent incarnational reality of what Paul was trying to communicate when he spoke of the profound mystery that marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. We close with those beautiful and helpful words. I could never promise you on just my strength alone that all my life I'd care for you and love you as my own. I cannot see the future. I only see today. So words that last a lifetime are more than I can say. But the love inside my heart today is not just mine alone. It never falters, never fails, and never seeks its own. So by the God who gives it and who lives in me and you, the words I say to you today are words I know I'll do. Father, please grant to all who hear this message your fresh empowering and anointing to stand against the tide and to do what Nehemiah and his people had to do when they had to rebuild their broken ruins. Help us like them to not fear the enemy, but remember the Lord who is great and terrible. Fear him, and then fight for your wives and your sons and your daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.